Hello, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. When you mix musical melodies and rhythm with movement and communication, a dose of humor and shared emotion, the result can be nothing short of magic. The Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, based in London, has been able to make this possible through the work of professional classical musicians, along with music scholars, educators, therapists, and healthcare providers. They created this experience with amazing programs like Strokestra and Music in Prisons through the Lullaby Project. RPO continues to provide these special experiences to groups around the UK and beyond, to schools with children with disabilities, centers for autism, and many more. Check out our website for more information on both of these projects. Ron and I took a very special trip across the pond to London, England, and sat with Lisa Rodeo, Tim Steiner, and Fraser Gordon at their rehearsal space in North London and discussed the sort of magic that seems to occur, why they do what they do, and what we can expect more of in the near future. So here is our conversation with Lisa, Tim, and Fraser from their rehearsal space near Regent's Park in North London, England. We're sitting with the wonderful Royal Philharmonic Orchestra team that we met in Atlanta, Georgia, recently at Strokestra ATL. And thanks for having us to your rehearsal space up here, guys. This is, uh, can I introduce you? Yes, Please. Mr. Contrabassoon himself, Fraser. Hi, I'm Fraser. Hi, Fraser. Tim Steiner. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You had to think about that one for a second. And Lisa Rodeo. Hello. Lisa, what's your last name? Rodeo. Wow, that's an awesome name. Thank you. I quite like it. (laughs) Lisa Rodeo. Before before we really get going, the Celtics are doing really well this year. We have gifts. So we have gifts for you guys. Oh, that's so This is for Fraser. It's basketball, basically. It's a basketball. <laughs> oh, basketball. Because Celtic, Celtic football have, team up in Glasgow are apparently doing very well as well. Yep. So there you go. And we have, have this special one for Tim. Why is that special? Why does he get the special one? It's the same one. And this even more it's, special it's one. It's the same. Oh, are there increasing this. levels of speciality? <laughs> this yeah. came all the way from Boston. I thought the basketballs were actually bigger than this, the ones <laughs> they use. This makes the game seem a whole lot different. <laughs> this, is, this is like hurling over here. Yeah. Or no, that's an Irish sport. That's another pound of, off of our luggage we don't have to carry around anymore. They're very <laughs> light. Yes, thanks for having us. Uh, London is one of my favorite cities. Not that I've been too many places. Uh, have, have any of you been to Boston? Yep. Yeah? Yes. All three of us. All three of you? <laughs> at the same time or at different times? Probably not. Not with the Royal Phil? No, the RPO haven't been there as long as I've been in the orchestra, which is a relatively short time. So I was, tell- who was, I t- I was telling someone before, was it you, um, about uh, Morphine. Anyways, we talked to a, a band, they're called Vapors of Morphine. The band was originally called Morphine, and he plays the baritone sax. It's a, it's a rock band. And when I peeked through the window, you were rocking out with that bassoon. You know, Who, me? <laughs> you were, you're doing a little Elvis kind of angle with your legs and really getting into the bassooning. Yeah, I'm glad you, was, you noticed that because I'm, I'm totally practicing my Elvis moves. <laughs> yeah. It's this piece that's been written by an American composer, Michael Doherty, who I met recently, actually. Uh, he's very cool. Yeah, it's for bassoon and chamber ensemble, and the bassoonist gets dressed up as Elvis and plays all these wacky things. Um, it's kind of a contemporary take on is Elvis dead or alive, that kind of legend that you have over there. Well, I suppose we have it over here as well. Yeah, and it's just a kind of crazy piece for bassoon. Thank you. 
I'm looking at the blue suede shoes for the performance on Monday. <laughs> so I'm that glad was that actually, you thought I was rocking the Elvis. I didn't move, know so. that was you doing Del- Dead Elvis. So that's I'm, a massive compliment. Thanks. I, I, that's what came to mind when you, I'm, I'm like, he's, Good getting, one. he's doing a little Elvis there Phew. with his bassoon. <laughs> with your looks, Fraser, it's sort of like, it's uncanny anyway, isn't it? Is it your really? Moves, yeah. I just need another burger. Yeah. Well, maybe like a, a Las Vegas version of Elvis. I don't see. Yeah, there's know, maybe I've still got to um, don the glitter. So, you know, once once the wig and the glasses, have, I've got that. You know, are you going to dress up? Really? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> this is the performance up in Carlisle. Yes, we're performing it kind of all over the UK actually in special educational needs schools over the next couple of weeks. This is great. We were talking about before with uh, the clarinetist, the person we met. Uh, what was her name? Sonia. Sonia. From Minnesota, mm-hmm. and who's been with the RPO for about a year, right? Yeah. And she was telling us about the octet and how you're touring uh, different schools. Yeah, so this is part of a project called Sound Around. And the idea of Sound Around is that we take the orchestra to places where young people don't necessarily engage very much with orchestral music. So the three areas for this year are Carlisle, Lowestoft, which is really far east in England, and Reading, which is sort of outside London. West of London. Yeah. And then Carlisle, if you don't know, is basically on the Scottish border, so it's pretty far north. And I think quite snowy at the moment, which is exciting. Um, so the octet is actually just one part of this big sound around project. And so in December, we're going to visit each area. And in each area, we'll work with four different special schools so that we can perform and interact with young people with special educational needs and disabilities who probably might not have been able to go to a concert before because they can't get to the concert hall or you know maybe their families don't regularly go to orchestral concerts and things like that. So we're kind of taking the music to them. So we're playing lots of classical classical repertoire that's actually for an orchestra that's been arranged down to an eight-piece octet so that we can kind of fit into their school oh. and show them, you know, Flight of the Bumblebee or Romeo and Juliet and things that the orchestra does mixed in with really cool stuff like Dead Elvis, which Fraser will obviously play. So it can be really relatable and fun. Oh, that's fantastic. And so the eight-piece is the abridged version of the large symphony, the yeah. large orchestra. And I would think that if you're that close and these kids are that engaged, it can be quite intense. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, for these kids that you know, and if you go and see an orchestra concert, you know, if let's say there's the orchestra's eighty piece, and you're not necessarily going to be that close to the performing musicians yourselves. Um, so actually, the eight piece um, just allows a much more intimate kind of experience for everybody. Yeah, it kind of is often overwhelming mm. for the people that are sitting listening. Whether it's just a, a matter of volume is sometimes a big deal for them. Some kids can't deal with that, and also emotionally as well. It's it's an amazing thing, the power of live music. Can you see the kids' faces when you start playing? Like, you see a change? Have you ever seen, like, a, a look of shock or something when they when they hear you start playing? And The way that we work these concerts actually is quite different from a usual concert. One thing we do very often is the first thing I'll do is uh, the octet are there, and the kids are all spread around. We're all on the same level. There's no separation. There's not a big stage or anything. We're very, it's very intimate. And I'll walk in holding up a ball. Um, and as we go into these concerts, I'm going to use this Boston Celtics Excellent. ball. It's a fortuitous gift. It's, yeah. it's it a is, perfect size. It is fortuitous. And I'll hold a ball. And just by holding a ball, everybody looks at that ball. And uh, they're really intrigued. You know, It's like, well, you know, what's this kind of crazy guy doing he's just holding a ball he looks a little bit odd we thought we were coming to a music concert and i'll hold it and i'll just move it about a bit and then suddenly i'll drop it and at the instant that it bounces on the floor the whole ensemble all eight of them you just hear a boom at the moment i play and then that leads into a whole game with this ball and you can bounce the ball and throw it around and the band play the movement and the bounce of the ball so you see the anticipation is 
poignant with that one moment of the music and the visual yeah. where it comes together and you see the magic of that ball. Exactly, yeah. So that must garner a lot of surprise from the kids. It's incredible surprise, both from the kids and also from the teachers as well, because it's such a captivating thing because it's a complete uh, synchronicity of sort of like visual and movement and dance and theatre and sound. And for many of the young people that we're working with in those schools, you know, some of them don't see very well, some of them don't hear very well, some of them sort of like really move a lot. It captures every one of them. And it's, on the one hand, really playful and really fun, but then it's an instant connection mm. to musicians in musicianship. And it turns into a game. So I'll sometimes use increasingly larger balls and then they hear the sound get bigger with bigger balls and then mm. we start kicking around football with the kids and we throw it into the audience and and so everyone in the room becomes a conductor it's very very playful that's it, fantastic it, it, it <clears throat> connects not only with the music and we, with you guys it breaks that barrier how about the interconnections amongst the teachers and all of the kids how does that change the main thing whenever we go into these schools is a lot of the teachers will be in the staff will be quite nervous because they've been to a traditional concert and they expect that their students who they work with who often can't necessarily sit quietly applaud at the right moment they need to move around they need to make noises you know mm. they have these you know physical responses to what's happening and so often you go into a school and the staff are quite worried because they think they're going to put the musicians off or they'll you know say something and it'll you know ruin the concert and so i think by starting Starting this way, it immediately puts everyone at ease and the staff realize, okay, this is fun. This is something our kids can really relate to. So I'm no longer worried about how their behavior is going to affect the musicians because mm. I can understand that actually this ensemble is here to react to, the, to our students. So they're doing everything and Tim does everything and the musicians are reacting to what the kids are doing. They're playing off of their response to whatever Tim does. So often when Tim does this ball exercise, he actually doesn't speak at all. He doesn't mm. explain what he's doing. So then if he throws it to an audience member and then the audience member decides to just roll the ball back to Fraser rather than throw it then the ensemble will, re will react to that and they'll play a different sound mm. so they can really understand yeah. the difference in different movements and how that affects the sound that the ensemble makes and it's just a really like practical way to understand what a conductor is doing and how all these different aspects affect music and how they can actually be in control yeah that word control like for me on the simplest level everybody in the room has got control mm. you're controlling sound and it's not just Tim that's controlling it. It's whoever's got the ball. And that person could be anyone. Have you rehearsed with the ball and kind of played around with it and kind of get on the same page? Or are you just kind no, of making we've it? never rehearsed it. And the very first time we mm. did it, I did not tell the musicians what we were doing. I let them work it out. So we're all in the game together. So and, organic. In it, and yeah. I'm also developing new things as I go through. It's yeah. unplanned. For me, I think music is about it's responding to the context you're in. I think the first time, you know, I'm looking over at Fraser, he's, he's there and I drop this ball and it's like, I think, you know, a couple of them played and the others are like looking around going, what, what, what's he doing? What is this? What is this thing? But then by two or three bounces, Who is this everyone's, weird guy? everyone's in on it. By that <laughs> yeah, we're in on it. Yeah. It's developing like a language, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's organic. And that's what music is about in its finest form, I think. You know, I work in, in my day job, we work in disability. And whether it's kids or adults or acquired or born with or traumatic or what, ha what have you, there is such a stigma, whether it's physical or mental illness or both, in society that there's a dichotomy between the people with and the people without. And there's if you walk down the street, there's the people that are shunned. There's people that certainly may not associate with one another in a normal circumstance. And so there's something about this project, no matter where you bring it, it's the thread between all of humans. It doesn't matter what color, what religion, and then disability. That's one thing that struck me live with you guys. I do want to step back a second to sort of um, introduce you guys more formally. I know we said hello before, but in front of me is 
Tim Steiner, who I wanted you to give me a little bit more of a background about how you got to the RPO and, and your background as a musicologist, in a sense. And then we have Lisa Rodeo, who really has been a, a shepherd and organizes the team. You, you got, I You're some, a shepherd, yes. I, I get these. I like that. <laughs> I like shepherds. I, I get these. Uh, I'm getting nods. Okay. Lisa Rodeo, professional shepherd. <laughs> and then Fraser, of course, uh, is a professional musician who's been with the RPO. But I also want to. I wanted to hear from each of you about where you, how you what, got to. You missed Fraser's last name. What's Fraser's last name? It's just Fraser. It's like Madonna. <laughs> like Cher. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Fraser Gordon. So sorry, yeah, please. Well, for me, I started out as you know, a pianist and guitarist, and I played in bands, and uh, I played classical music as well, and I was composing. And it seemed pretty clear to me at a very young age, I say in my mid-teens, that in fact the days of fully scored notation were at an end, and that there was no real future in that, because it was pretty clear that if you stand in front of a symphony orchestra and you ask everybody to play, choose one note and just to play that note, you have the potential to create an extraordinary sound in an instant and a unique sound. And that the power of just that transaction with an orchestra is something that when you're bound to a formal written score is incredibly restricted and, and quite difficult to do. So I, at the time, I was looking at you know music by composers like Ligeti and Xenarchis, who had these very, very thick, dense, complex scores. And I was finding that it's very easy to create sound walls that are not too dissimilar very, very easily and very straightforwardly. And from that, it became clear to me that once you dispense with the need to be tied to notated material... That means you don't need to be tied to only musicians that can read notated material. And then you move one step further. If you give an instruction, which is play any note, you don't need to be restricted to somebody that has a particular facility of playing an instrument. Anyone can make a sound. From then it became clear that actually everyone's a musician. Everyone can be a musician. And so it grew to me quite naturally as a musician to just work with anybody in the room. If you're a professional musician, you know, of great skill and virtuosity like Fraser is, that's great. If you're a seven-year-old kid that's never played an instrument before, that's also great. When you put the two of them together, that's the best possible thing. And so from that, I end up working in all kinds of contexts. Um, the time I met you, Ron, in the States, um, presenting our work and working with uh, stroke survivors in the States. And that's the road I'm on now. And that's kind of how I got there. Now, Miss Shepard. Well, I, so I started out playing trumpet, and I went to the University of Maryland and did trumpet performance as my undergrad. But I kind of knew sort of my junior year, I was like, this isn't really for me. I don't want to be a professional musician. I don't want to practice as much as I need to be practicing um, and all of those types of things. And I'd actually minored in French language. So when I graduated, I went to France to teach for a year. So I was in this really small village in the east of France and was teaching, and I found myself um, just using the arts quite a lot when I was teaching. So it was obviously it was a lot of songs, it was a lot of games, it was a lot of theater, a lot of just arts activities to get people to be using English and speaking English. And that got me really interested in education. And so I decided to go do a master's. And so I came to do it in London at City University. And on that course, I did an internship with the Royal Opera House. And it blew my mind. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. In the States, all of the kind of music education that I'd been through is really traditional youth orchestra. You start when you're young, you're given an instrument, um, you know, you learn to read music, and then you replicate these pieces that have been in existence for years and years, which is obviously great, and it's a really good skill for people to learn, and it teaches discipline, and it teaches so many things. But what the Opera House was doing was working with young people and having them, they were learning some repertoire, but then they were also composing their own music. And so they were really putting their stamp on the opera we were working on, which was Carmen. 
And I found that at the end of it, these young people actually had such a good understanding of Carmen in a way that if you just learn the music and you learn the repertoire and you learn the notes, I just have never seen people get that kind of experience. And it kind of clicked and it was like, well, of course, why would you ever expect someone to understand this when it's nothing to do with their life as far as they can tell? You know, for them, they're going through the motions of learning the music and that's fantastic, but they don't have necessarily that connection until it becomes something that they can really own. And the way that they own it is because they've written it. And so they've thought about what they're writing. They've thought about what it means. They've thought about, you know, if there's lyrics, they're thinking about what they express. If it's the music, they're thinking about how they're playing something to demonstrate some sort of emotion. And so they really have the ownership of it. And that was sort of when it clicked for me and I was kind of like wow this is such a different thing than anything I'd experienced in the States so basically I decided I wanted to stay on in the UK um, and got a job at the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and then since then it's just been going through so many amazing different projects in special schools and prisons Um, we recently did a really fun project in a prison which Fraser was on as well where we were helping these incarcerated men write lullabies for their children that they obviously don't get to see wow and yeah so we we went in we helped them write them over two days they sent them off to an arranger um, and then we came back in and did an RPO recording of them so that they got this professional quality recording that they could then send to their kids who they are obviously missing quite a lot and it's just all these different experiences so we'll talk about the stroke project I'm sure soon and you know you're really getting an insight into these people's lives and you're using music in a way that is I think so much more important in a sense sometimes than if somebody goes to you know a concert and has a fantastic experience that's amazing but there's so many other things that you can do with music when you've got these fantastic musicians as you know at your fingertips you're right when you can have the most talented amazing groups from jazz to rock to classical around the world but if you don't have the other side of the coin the deep desire to heal people and to to explore that common language of music you could do it on your own i'm sure there's some musicians that can do it all on their own but it's not easy that's why this exists it sounds like mr gordon i'm the contrabassoon player in the royal philharmonic orchestra and i've been uh, a member of the orchestra for five and a half years now which is I suppose quite a short time, given the length of some people's careers. And originally I started as a violin player. My parents gave me a violin when I was nine, something like that. And when I was in high school, I went to my school music teacher and asked if I could play a wind or a brass instrument. And he said, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I want to be in the wind band, because all my friends are in it. And he said, fine, take a bassoon. No one plays that. See how you get on. (laughs) Um, Fast forward a few years and I go to music college in Glasgow, where I um, essentially didn't start out with the idea that I would become an orchestral musician. Although I suppose... I decided that that's what everybody else was doing, so maybe I should do that. I don't know. Um, I just wanted to continue studying music after school because everybody said that, you know, I could have music as my hobby and that would be amazing, amazing thing to do and go and do something else and always play the bassoon as a side thing. And I decided that that was just absolutely not enough. So I had to do music in some form. And then a few years later, I emerged, I suppose, a professional bassoonist. But as part of my degree, which is a really interesting point over here, this sort of drive to have music in communities is um, starting to become a big part of the conservatoire education system as well, which is not necessarily worldwide part of your conservatoire training and not even necessarily what everybody in the conservatoire wants to do as part of their degree. But I did, and I chose to do that option and was sort of placed with the professional orchestras and 
you know, and saw how some of the education departments were running, whether it be in a good or a bad way. You know, you learn through seeing things that you think can run better as well and got a fair amount of professional experience doing that, which I sort of feel is a very sort of healthy thing to have as a performer. So you have an overall picture of the world outside just sitting down and playing a symphony, which is amazing. And I also get amazing excitement and massive kicks through playing the classical repertoire on stage. Of course I do, and I hope that the audience that are listening and watching get that as well. But for me, it's absolutely hand-in-hand with the work I do with RPO Resound, which is the name of our community and education department, and in the different guises, whether it's in a prison setting or with the stroke rehab patients or in a special educational needs schools, which a couple of weeks ago, which is some of the most touching things I've ever done. I'm playing my bassoon to some small children who, I don't know, they just love it and you can see on their faces, but they love it even more when they can play along. And that's kind of the the thing. <laughs> As Tim said, you know, it's that like anyone can be a musician and, you know, some people will appreciate my type of music or another type of music. But, you know, when that collaboration is the thing that I think strikes deep into people, not just children, adults as well. It has to be said, when I started doing some work in the RPO uh, Education and Community Department that I was very reticent to work with adults. I think I must have made that known to the head of department and she sort of deliberately steered me away from working with children all the time because I <laughs> find working with kids really fun. But I've always um, shied away from working with adults, which is particularly actually the, the projects that Tim is amazing at. And so I found myself working alongside Tim um, on a few different projects and uh, lost that particular fear. It's a difficult thing, I think, the line between teaching and educating and making music with people I was always worried about patronising adults until I just realised it was not about that at all, it was just about making music with folk, that's how it is I can kind of understand that fear though because for kids, they're going to be more open to whatever you're you're giving them and you know, if you're talking to an adult we're stubborn beings (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) you know. But I saw that video that you guys did of the Stokestra and you could see there's this older gentleman with his wife, I think. And, I don't know, you could kind of see the, okay, come on. You could kind of see it in his face when he, when he first started. And then he was, you could see the, the joy come into it very slowly. He kind of eked in from what I could, you know, it was only a three-minute video. But you could see it kind of affect him, and he ended up enjoying it, probably despite mm. himself. You know, maybe he went in kind of thinking, this is nothing I'm going to enjoy, and he ended up enjoying it. But I, I can understand that. The fear there with the kids—it's a little more. It's like pup, they're like puppies, right? They're a little easier <laughs> to deal with. Yeah, and I think that the in stroke disability uh, in adults, there's a certain dignity that actually is taken away from people initially. There's almost a vulnerability that exists in general in someone that that has a stroke versus not. I'd be very interested to see the different populations and and what you observe with patients and caregivers. And I also wanted to hear about the uh, prison guys, I'm assuming. It's very sexist of me, I guess, but I'm assuming they're, they're mostly men. Well, we were working in a, an all-male prison, yes. It yeah. was one of the, the largest prison. oh, no, prisons actually, in... I was in a woman's prison only yesterday. Oh, were you? Really? Okay. Oh, we had right. hot, okay. off, hot off the press, yeah. Portuguese women prison. Yes. And this wasn't with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. This was mm. some, uh, some different work I was doing. And we've worked in that prison before, actually, and it's quite a nice prison. They regard it as the holiday resort of prisons. It is really quite nice. It's quite lovely. It's certainly better than many hotels the RPOs put me up in over the years. And um, the... <laughs> Did you hear that, Shepard? What, uh, 
what we find there, you go into a prison, if you're doing music... This is version B, by the way. With yeah. a, uh, you, do mu- you do music with people in a prison, and it is their best day in prison. In like a ever. year. Ever. Yeah, ever. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we, uh, in the UK, um, there's certainly some prisons where they have 23 hours of the day are in their cells, and then they're allowed out for an hour in the day. That's reasonably normal, straightforward, not all prisons, certainly. But you're dealing with people in a very specific context. There's a lot of personalities, a lot of characters find themselves in prison and they're also they have no opportunity to express themselves so you give them a little window to express themselves and this whole wealth of emotion and feeling comes out of them and um it's always very very intense when you say that is there something that comes to mind that you can tell us like an example of that emotion that comes out of somebody i worked on a project a few years ago in a prison and we were we were drawing up lists of foods foods that you would miss or foods that you really love and now in prison one of the things that's taken away from you is your ability to choose your food and the women drew up these lists incredible lists of food and in portugal they love their food this fantastic list of food and for the concert we were reading this list over a piece of music everyone was reading it like a greek chorus and the women came out of the prison for the performance um under heavy guard there were two officers for every one woman at the end of this concert there's a thousand people in the audience they're all reading this list of words all in a really chaotic thing and and it got towards the end of it and voices were filtering out and then there was one woman left speaking and she said but the greatest food i miss is the food of the love of my son son i love you and her son was in the audience and he stood up and he goes mother i love you and everyone burst into tears <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, and it was just so beautiful. To go to a movie. That's amazing. My name is Moshumi Akhtar. This is my lullaby for my son, Almir Safwan Ahmed, and my daughter, Khadija Sara Ahmed. We love prison stories. Yeah, this, is, this is a prison podcast. Because on our recent project that Fraser and I were on, and this was in partnership with a, a group called Music in Prison. Mm. So there's um, a couple of musicians who work in prisons almost exclusively or with the justice system. And they'd brought the RPO in on this project specifically to give it that kind of classical professional experience for the men that we were working with. I remember one of the men who we were working with, it was just so poignant because he didn't get to see his daughter anymore. She'd been taken into care after he'd gone into prison. 
Um, so the fact that he was given this chance then to talk about his daughter. Um, and so some of the questions we were asking were things like, what were you thinking before your child was born? What were you thinking afterwards? So, you know, a lot of the people had similar answers. They were really nervous before their child was born. They didn't know what to expect. And then obviously that, you know, overwhelming love that you feel. And then asking questions about what they missed about them now. And for him, obviously, he hasn't seen his daughter in quite a few years. So those, I think it was a really difficult question for him to answer. Um, and I was a little bit worried about it, actually. And he stuck with it and he was really keen to do it and came through everything. And in the end, we did his piece. So we had a professional singer come in and sing the words that the men had written with the RPO sextet behind them. And at the end of it, and he'd been so quiet the whole way through, hadn't really said much. He was really, really Scottish. So I think only Fraser could understand him. Um, and it's, you know, one of those accents, it's just really difficult. And he's really quiet and calm and nice. And then at the end, when we were, you know, we were like, everyone's applauding and in tears, basically. And, you know, all the other men had gone and then they just went, went and sit down. And he, but he wanted to stand up and he took the microphone because he wanted to say thank you because it had meant so much to him. And it meant so much. And he'd got to meet these musicians and work with them you know, so closely in that they'd really listened, I think, to the stuff that he had to say. And I think that's another thing, as Tim was saying, obviously you don't get to choose your food. You also don't really get listened to. You don't get to make your own decisions about anything. So this was an opportunity for him to talk about something that's obviously very important to him with people who were all ears and were trying to their best to express everything that he'd told them. When he started to speak, I just was really torn up because it was just not something that was expected of him. And he really took an extra time to do it and to, you know, speak publicly, which is really nice. We talked to a guy named Darden Smith, who does this program called, what is it called, Songwriting with Soldiers? Songwriters with Soldiers. Songwriters with Soldiers. I mean, you know, everyone has their own, you know, battles, right? Their own demons that they're dealing with, whether you're in prison or he would talk with vets who have PTSD and he would just sit down with this vet and they would just write a song together and the vet would be able to say whatever was on his or her mind that no one would be able to understand or listen to maybe, and they were able to tell their story through the songs. It's the same kind of thing. It's an avenue for someone who wouldn't normally be able to let out of them whatever they're holding in, and the music has that kind of power over people. It's It's an amazing thing. And the other amazing thing is you guys. I mean, people like you, people like Darden, a bunch of other musicians we've talked to, we're finding more and more musicians are doing things Four kids, we've, we've talked to a couple songwriters who write children's music. One of our new friends, Alistair Mook, he did an album for kids who have had cancer. I love hearing these kind of stories of musicians not just saying, oh, I'm just going to, I just want to be a rock star and, you know, or a bassoon star, Elvis impersonator, <laughs> and doing something like this because it's, so, it's so important. But that's a juxtaposition, though, too. I mean, you, you took your bassoon. You went with it. You went to school. You became a professional. We've got to know each other a couple times, but I, if I may, it sounds like you, you get genuine joy to do this part of yeah, absolutely. Uh, just this part of music. But on the other hand, too, that meticulous learning of the song for the symphony, the people that are 150% the other direction, mm. is there a part of you that you need to focus on in that way? It, yeah, that's quite saying? a good question. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think at the moment, I certainly feel as if I've got a pretty good balance of what I want. I certainly couldn't do one without the other in one side. I'd So I couldn't only do the just playing classical music concerts without the education side of things. I could do it the other way. I could just be a classical musician, you know, because that's what I am. You know, I can't really change that. But in doing the education and the community stuff that has sort of pushed very different aspects of my musicianship mm. beyond what most classical musicians would sit down and do day to day. You know, I could do this kind of uh, work. How has that affected your actual musicianship? How has all of these 
incredible experience that you have, how has that affected the way you physically play in the orchestra? I suppose that's a very difficult question to answer. It's certainly made me a much more flexible musician. Um, it's, it's very difficult to answer that because, I mean, it's certainly challenged my technical ability on the bassoon, you know, because sometimes I'm in a context, whether it's in a prison or with stroke rehab patients or in a school, and somebody just turns around and goes, hey, can you play The Simpsons? And I'm like, uh, hang on, uh, okay, go. <laughs> you know, and you just have to kind of use your musicianship and your ears and your sort of technical ability and all those things kind of put together. Plus, yeah, I would imagine there'd be some flexibility that would... Have, yeah, there's a lot of flexibility in, in, in that. Improv and, yeah, and yeah. to be honest, a lot of classical musicians would would just say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, and I suppose your kind of willingness and openness to just kind of go for it. And I'm probably not going to get it 100% right, which is half of the battle. You know, I'm just going to try and throw into the wind that I'm going to just, you know, go for how to play The Simpsons. And of course I know how to play The Simpsons, you know, because I've been asked to play that like a hundred times. Um, <laughs> so, you know, try and just pick a different note to start on. And I think the important part is if, if I get it wrong, not to be absolutely horrified that I've made wrong notes. And that is perhaps maybe the crux of what doing all of this work has taught me. Like the world is not going to end you know, but actually the fact that you've muddled through and got most of the music to The Simpsons right, you put a smile on everybody's faces. That's what it's about, surely. There's a thing, there's an interesting thing that um, I think you said about how doing all these extra other activities and the thing is, it's like going into a prison or working with stroke survivors aren't extra activities or other things that classical musicians do. What it is, is that is music making. And it's music making as important and vital as concerts of symphonic music in concert halls. Unfortunately, over the past 200 years in the West, particularly, we've ended up in a situation where somehow the main business of professional musicians is to play notated music in rarefied concert halls to people coming and sitting in. Now, if you look at the history of music making and sound production in the history of the world, it's a tiny fragment of that history whereby we've ended up in this ridiculous situation where you have incredible musicians who are scared of playing wrong notes, scared of kind of getting down and playing with amateurs and beginners, um, a culture whereby, you know, if you sing and you get a few wrong notes and you're a bit out of tune, that somehow you, you shouldn't be in the choir. That attitude to music, for me, is at the heart of some of the major problems that we're facing in the UK and in the United States and in Europe. Sure. It's, yeah. it's this idea of like culture being this straight-jacketed, unchangeable, unflexible thing. And I think one of the things we're really enjoying is like, you know, when you go into when you do a different thing in music and you meet new different people every day, it's like you're working with culture and people and uh, you're part of developing the future and working for a better world. That's well Cheers. said. Cheers to that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a thing. I mean, you hear with the um, who's David Grohl. You know, David Grohl from... Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. He said, you know, those people who want to go on American Idol, it's like, don't go on American Idol. Go into your... You got to go into your basement and you got to suck. And don't be afraid of sucking. And just keep on sucking. Because eventually, you're going you're gonna to write a sucky song. And yeah, it's going to suck. But eventually, you're going to write better songs. That won't suck as, mu- suck as much. And there's that fear of... Sucking, I guess. I guess it's the it's the fear of making a mistake, the fear of looking silly or being embarrassed or, or whatever it is. The fear of embarrassment too is interesting. I think because it's not about this, the professional musicians. If you take 
what you have done and what the reason why we've come together is there's a certain uh, lifting of the the tension, that ball that you started talking about, or the interactive music that occurs between people I've never met before. Yeah, it's interesting because you were mentioning that when you work with kids, sometimes it's a lot easier because they're happy to just try things out. And when we work with adults, there is sometimes, although kids can also be obviously nervous about things, but with the adults, there is that thing of, oh, but I'm not a musician, so I shouldn't touch that instrument. And that comes from, you know, years of going to school, being told you sing out of key, and so you shouldn't be in the choir, as Tim was saying, or, you know, that's not how you play that. Um, and so it really puts these barriers up, and even if people don't realize that, that they have that fear. So Tim, often when he gives out instruments, he doesn't tell you how to play the instrument. So this will be, you know, a different percussion instrument you might not have seen. He'll just say, figure out how to make a noise on that. And once you've made a sound, as Tim was saying, we can use that sound, build it into a piece. And then all of a sudden you're making music before you really realize it. And it's actually not that scary, but there is that fear. And as soon as you get over it and you realize that everybody around you, obviously you've got professional musicians who sound amazing, but you're sitting next to someone else who's never played triangle and might be playing it you know, the wrong way compared to how professional percussionists might play it. But it's still making a sound. It's still part of the ensemble. It's still part, you know, of the music that you're making. So all of a sudden you are a musician and you're part of this thing. And that's, I think, where the tension goes because you realize actually it still sounds great because you have these great musicians that kind of hold the fort down and make sure that they're reacting to what you're doing and making it sound good. <laughs> but so you, you kind of get over that fear because you see that, as we were saying, with the Stroke Project, it's a b- really big equalizer because you've got therapists next to stroke survivors, next to their spouses who sometimes are their caregivers these days, and they're all doing something that maybe they were really nervous about doing and they're not experts in, but they're doing it. They've gotten over it. Tim's kind of coaxed them into doing it in a lot of occasions. Yeah, and you're showing that it's possible, and it's there right in your face, whether it's words. With We talked about, you said food in the women's prison. In this sense, when you were in Atlanta, it was all the things you love about Atlanta, and it became this amazing hip-hop song. There were, like you said, therapists and other and patients, of course, and spouses, but there were also physicians. There was the chair of the whole department of Emory Brain Health that was right there in the circle, too, and it, it takes away that sort of that veil of doctor-patient relationship too. Yeah, I remember him, and he particularly enjoyed conducting Fraser, as uh, I recall. We were doing that in an improvisation, drawing an imaginary line, and he, he discovered that when he drew the line very low, Fraser would play a kind of fart sound towards the bottom end, and, <laughs> and at that moment he turned, he turned into a six-year-old boy yeah. enjoying that thing, and you could see the effect actually on the other people there was like enjoying we were just all sharing the joke and the fun of it absolutely and that exact moment is captured on the video huffington post video yeah that is that moment of him conducting me yeah it's very funny funny. we circled back to strokestra and maybe you could say a couple things about how this came to be and where you are now the way that the RPO works in the UK is that we tour the region. So we play a lot in London. We play at Royal Albert Hall. We play at Royal Festival Hall. Um, our home's Cadogan. But actually, our remit from the Arts Council and our responsibility is really to be the orchestra that visits the region. So we go around the east of England to places um, that don't have their own professional orchestra. So we've got what we call residencies in specific places around the country that are kind of important so that we reach more people. Part of what we do whenever we become resident orchestra is we work with the local partners. So it's normally the local authority, the local government, the local venue and we find out what the local needs are so in some places um, you know it's youth literacy so in Scunthorpe we've done projects with primary schools that are based around Shakespeare and literacy um, attainment things like that in Hull they flagged up that actually they've got a really high stroke prevalence rate so we got in touch with the stroke service and they were really enthusiastic but a little bit unsure what can we do what what could this look like so we spent about six months kind of doing research into the evidence base for music and stroke therapy that already existed then we brought Tim and um, a team of musicians up to Hull a few times kind of put the therapist through a normal creative session so they could see how it works they could understand what we mean when we say we're going to compose a piece with 
people. We're going to actually make them play the instruments. We're going to get them playing things that they don't think that they can play. And then the therapist fed back, you know, well, actually this activity that you're doing could be really great for this patient that I have who's got this cognitive disability and, you know, loses attention to the left side. If we did, if we did it slightly differently, could you do it this way? You know, I'm thinking of this patient who really needs to work on this specific upper limb movement. Do you have anything for that? Is there an instrument that requires that movement? And so there was a really, a lot of back and forth. Hmm. Um, so not only what you do in the community, but also with other groups, but almost a specific prescription for certain impairments. This was a very, a very unusual project. For us, we would very rarely do something so specific with a targeted group working with therapists in the health service. And we learned a lot very quickly. Uh, Lisa learned an incredible lot. You know, so within six months, she was correcting the therapists on scientific journals and stuff. But, uh, that's how she is. Thanks for that. Uh, shepherd. Yeah, exactly. PhD. Yeah, the shepherd. Yeah, yeah. She's formed new, new ways of training dogs to get sheep together. Now, she's publishing a paper on it next year at the International Conference of Shepherding. Um, but we discovered actually some of these other therapeutical things purely by chance we're not music therapists and we didn't work with music therapists as part of this thing but it was like the business of being a musician working with a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist that meant that they would spot things we were doing and say oh hang on in my work I could use that thing that you're doing to make my job much much easier one thing I noticed at the end of that um, besides Fraser that we botched the we tried to give biscuits flying biscuits and we realized that they're actually scones or scones they're not scones? the same thing i have to say what you call biscuits is what we call scones scones they're so there's a lot of conf- scones? Co- ron promised so- us biscuits and what i got was a scone which was great it was really tasty i'm not complaining about that i delivered <laughs> it was very right. generous it was, it was an inaccurate uh, word i felt over those biscuits or scones when we looked at the 10 to 15 stroke survivors in Atlanta, Georgia, and they came together with Strokestra RPO, and at the end, over those biscuits, they were exchanging phone numbers on their iPhones. They were hugging each other. Mm. This would have never, ever happened in yeah. life. Sure, you can bring people together for other reasons, of course, but there was a thread there of the music and what they did, what they created together. just an incredible way of uh, developing communities and bringing people together from such diverse backgrounds and we've worked many times where you have an incredible experience in in, in Atlanta it was particularly acute because it was so short and that group of people we all believe that group of people knew each other because they were so generous that's very true and warm and uh, but you know certainly I've, I've worked and had that experience and then after the after that case found out that in fact in that room of people who were getting on so wonderfully and sharing, you know, personal information and really profound experiences that, in fact, we have people from completely polar opposite political viewpoints, religious, complete religious differences, and people that in any other context it would be almost impossible Mm. to bring together in a meaningful way. Any kind of personal creative projects that you're all doing? Like, are you in, like, a 
uh, a heavy metal goth band or something that we don't know about? Is, is anything We're all handing on? our microphones to Tim at this point. Yeah. What's, <laughs> going, what's going on? Anything interesting? I'm working with a city called Valletta in Malta, which is part of the EU, and they, they hold a, th- a thing called the EU Capital of Culture. I'm there working for eight months, with, and the brief is to form a band of the citizens of Malta. What we expect is about 500 to 1,000 people. When you say band, are you talking about an orchestra, or are you talking about... When I say band, I mean large group of people playing music. So Whatever, uh, whatever, whatever music it is. is. Uh, actually, you know, in, in, in UK orchestras call themselves bands, mainly because it's a sort of a slang term for cool. a group of musicians. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're just trying to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and interestingly, a lot of actually rock bands now have started calling themselves orchestras, trying to be uh, posh and arty. Uh, it all, little, you know, right. what goes around comes uh, around. That's a little uppity. The message is clearly one of kind of diversity and inclusion. You know, it's like everyone's welcome. How about you? Any going to start a bassoon band? I definitely don't have anything like brewing as cool as what Tim's just talked about. Um, no, I don't know. Um, everything I sort of creative is all all through the orchestra, I guess. Well, I do a lot of baking in my spare time. That's creative. Well, you do a lot of baking. Yeah, <laughs> scones. I make proper scones. I make contrabassoon reeds, which is the boring part of my life. You make what? Are you serious? You Con- make the reeds? Yeah, I make the reeds. How do you make the reeds? Oh god, oh, this is another whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you make your own reeds. Yeah, contrareeds dot com. You can buy them. Oh, we'll plug that. Yeah, you don't, they, I'm not, there's not very many in stock right now, but yeah, I'll I mean, I make one. my reads. You know, just and I'm. It's, that's it's it's not a hobby; it's a necessity. But it's something I find very therapeutic about my work. Contrareads. That's awesome. Contrareads.com. I know you have to leave. You guys got to go. When when do you have to go? Right now. She's fairly soon. She's, okay, she's right. saying yeah, so let's get out, out of the room here. as well by four thirty. Oh, okay. Yeah. All, right, right. all right. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
We would like to thank Lisa, Tim, and Fraser for sitting with us, and a special thanks to Lisa for coordinating the conversation. Be sure to go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can find out more about Strokestra and Music in Prisons through the Lullaby Project. We'll have their websites listed there. You can also sign up there for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Remember, Boston Music, like its history, is unique. Unique.